0: Rick Rule is a favorite in the Real Vision community. If you'd like to meet up with Rick and get a master class from the master himself, you'll want to head to the Rick Rule Symposium on Natural Resource Investing in Florida, July 23rd to the 27th. You'll get access to industry insiders, elite bullion dealers, gold council members, and uranium pros. There's special early bird pricing for in-person and virtual sets until June 30th. Just head over to realvision.com Forward slash Central bankers spoke. Our investors listening. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the extended Real Vision Daily Briefing. With me today is Brent Donnelly, president of Spectra Markets. Hi, Brent. It's great to see you.
1: Hey, Maggie. How's it going?
0: It's going okay.
1: Good.
0: Um, you know, before we kick off, just a reminder to everybody. Um, The second half of the show is for Real Vision members. So if you want to be part of that conversation, and we hope you do, scan the QR code or a link that Brian will drop in the chats and join the community. Um, So great, great day to be with you, Brent. We had uh, four of the most influential people in the world. I think you could argue on a stage together. Uh, speaking earlier, the governor of the Bank of Japan, the governor of the Bank of England, the chairman of the Federal Reserve and the European Central Bank president, um, all sort of fielding questions and talking about monetary policy. You don't see that all the time. Um, what was your takeaway from what they had to say?
1: So I think the takeaway is a little bit boring um, because generally, Sintra kind of has been the Jackson Hole for the ECB, the place where they kind of, showcase what their bigger picture policy direction is. And I'm not the only one that's saying this, but they don't know what's happening or what's gonna happen. Like I think the the credibility, it's not necessarily the the central banks, but the credibility of economic forecasting and whether it's private or public forecasts has just gone down a lot um, since 2020 or 2021. So from 2010 to 2020, You had kind of a low volatility environment um, in markets, but also low volatility of economic data. Mm. And so that period kind of made it pretty easy to be a central banker, right? Because they could go so slow and they could just kind of, there was so much room for error, so much margin for error. And in this cycle, everything's going so quickly that they've made a lot of errors. And most of them, obviously, in hindsight, although a lot of people thought they were making a big mistake with transitory. Um, so now when you get these gatherings like we had today, it's just, doesn't have the same punch because people don't believe what they're hearing. So even like there was a divergence kind of between Lagarde and Bailey and Powell in terms of whether we're deep enough in, in restrictive territory to slow the economy and whether it's just about long and variable legs or whether they have to hike more. right? and that disagreement in you know economies that are operating in similar frameworks with a lot of inflation and inflation coming down in all those economies the fact that those are like the biggest central bankers in the world and they all they have probably 1200 phd's employed between them and they disagree on on what the lags are means that they don't know and we don't know and i mean i think that's really been the this sort of like the hallmark of this whole cycle right is just the the inability of forecasters to predict what's going to happen and and that continues
0: yeah and part of it is because there was this humongous unprecedented experiment right i mean you're coming already out of an experimental phase with QE and all of that and the impact of of negative rates and then you had a pandemic where they threw everything at it. And so, you know, what does that look like coming out of it? You just, you don't know. So you have this sort of, you know, they keep going from kind of uncharted to uncharted. So I guess it shouldn't be surprising. They don't really know.
1: No, um, I, mean, I don't, I don't really even put that forth as a massive criticism. It's yeah. more just the reality <laughs> of forecasting is really hard. Um, like, especially about the future is the cliche, but um. And then the, the other issue, too, is that this cycle has brought up a lot of new kind of wonky details that weren't really relevant in the past. Like, for example, year over year data is kind of like the standard benchmark of what people look at for data. But then if you, know, if you went to infinity in 2021 and then kind of did not that much in 2022 and then went to back to baseline in 2023... All your year-over-year comps are going to be all busted so like it's the same thing in china right like if you're comparing consumption now to 2022 when they were in COVID zero like what does that mean so then do you compare it to 2019 and then what happens with a lot of this stuff is unfortunately it comes down to the priors of the person looking at the data so if they're like a deflationista or like someone who tends like say blanche flower is always very dovish tends to lean that way Um, And that's no disrespect to him. I think he's totally fine central banker, but then he'll see dovish stuff everywhere, right? He'll look at year over year M2. It's like, ah, it's collapsing. It's negative 5%. But then if you look at the three year change, it's basically on trend. So I'm just saying M2, but you can look at anything. And it's very difficult to know what the hell is actually happening because your standard way of looking at the data in a lot of cases, not all the cases, but in a lot of cases, just doesn't apply. And then you can, then the, the issue becomes you can choose your framework and your framework is going to match your bias. So that's. Yeah, th- the,
0: I think that's, the issue. Such a, that's such a wise observation, Brent. And I think it explains why th- things seem so not chaotic, but there seems to be so little clarity or so much disagreement. We hear everyone say it that this is such a tough macro environment like translated just means no one knows what's going on, including the central bankers, or no one can kind of get a handle on that. Um, I wonder if investors are having the same issue, right? Like if you can't look at year on year, are they faced with the same problem that there's just no forward clarity?
1: I mean, I think absolutely, because you look at things like a lot of the standard metrics, like say the yield curve, inverting, um, or NHB sentiment collapsed. And if you look at history, so <clears throat> excuse me and the other thing is that any kind of historical analogy or analog that you run probably doesn't work because none of this stuff has ever happened before. So if you look at like NHB housing index, usually that turns and then construction employment collapses like a, a year later. Cause that's just how it works. You, all the houses that are being built now, they finish those houses. So sentiments going down, but they got to finish the houses that they already started. And once they finish, then those, those construction people get laid off and they don't get jobs. But this time basically the demand went down, the sentiment went down, but then this fiscal stuff started like the, you know, building reshoring and plants in Kentucky and Ohio and all that. And there was some unknown shortage already. So as those projects, those home projects ended, those workers either got absorbed by other projects that couldn't start because they were short of workers or other service jobs who were also short of workers or this infrastructure stuff picked up the slack. And now there's shortages in those jobs. Like in, in Ohio, they can't find enough people to build the chip plants. So all of this stuff is unprecedented and you threw like what, $5 trillion at the economy and That money didn't just like, it didn't, it wasn't like all spent in 2021, although most of it seemed to have gone into crypto in 2021, but (laughs) it it wasn't all spent. Mm -hmm. And then someone posted a good tweet that said, um, U S uh, what was it? U S consumers now have somewhere between 99 cents and $5 trillion of excess savings. (laughs) Like that's how, that's how confused everyone is. And so forget about forecasting that like, it's just hard to even measure the stuff, right? Like look at non-farm payrolls has beaten 14 months in a row on the unrevised, like the actual announcement has beaten 14 times in a row. And that again, like for it to beat five times in a row is pretty weird. Like six or seven is unusual and like 14 is insane. So it just shows like everything is impossible to understand. And I think like in that environment, the best way to be is agnostic, but then a lot of people, so going back to your initial question about like, how has this harmed investors is that people have been very bearish because a lot of the normal signs of apocalypse were present in like the inverted yield curve and housing and all that. And yet those, none of those things came to fruition because other bullish factors came in to save the day. And so I think like the biggest, I mean, really the biggest bias in finance, uh, through my whole career has been just people are way too bearish. Um, like stocks go up, whatever, 70% of the time and 70, 73% of years or something like that. And I would say like people are generally at least 50% bearish most of the time. So um, there's, always again, a, there's
0: always a mismatch. Why do you think that? Yeah. Is?
1: Um, I mean, I know why it is. I mean, I've written a ton about this. It's just that that's a human bias, right? Is that the mainstream media has a negativity bias because that's what people want to read. Being negative makes you sound smarter. Being bullish makes you sound like you're waving the pom-poms on CNBC. Um, so, And it's like being bearish also sells subscriptions. Um, like a friend of mine uh, runs a newsletter and he was bearish, like well, this is way, way back in the day. He was bearish from like 08 to 2013. And then he was like, okay, I've seen the light. I'm, I'm getting bullish. And he lost one third of his subscribers because. People want confirmation of their bearish view, and like mm-hmm. there's so much literature on this. Like people always think everything's getting worse, but then on many metrics, you know, like global po- global poverty and yeah. you know women's rights, and many, 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 many men- metrics, things are getting like inexorably better. But the human bias is to be negative, and the mainstream media is like that. Twitter is like that. Yeah. So I think it's very hard to have a diet of information that's balanced. Um, It's just easier to make the bear case all the time. And like, to be fair, the bear case made sense, like for ages in for a good part of 2022 and 2023.
0: So, hey, everyone, we're going to take a quick break right now to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. Yeah. Well, there are times. I mean, you're gonna be right sometimes if you're yeah, bearish. I, yeah, right? of course. But the problem is that if you're always bearish, then you're missing a lot of the upside. I mean, we, we listen, we experience all the time because um Raoul tends to be bullish, like he tends he's he's right. very focused on exponential age. And mm. you know, it's interesting that you say that because um, so investors-that's the skew for investors. I, I think it's probably there's probably an argument that it's exactly the flip for uh, entrepreneurs, right. And, and <laughs> venture people. Cause I, I, uh, we've spoken to Peter Diamandis a few times, um, created the X prize and, mm. you know, started a university for space while he was still getting his, you know, doctorate, um, it's still in Harvard Medical School. I mean, a crazy serial entrepreneur. Mm. And he is relentlessly optimistic and bullish. Like he won't even consume negative news because Mm. it takes up too much bandwidth.
1: Right. Um, right. So he
0: started a million company, you know, because he's always leaning into this. So it's so interesting that some of the unicorns everyone chases are, and and sometimes it's the downfall of those entrepreneurs, by the way, because they're never prepared.
1: So but like someone said to me on that topic that go through the Forbes 100 list of, of the most like of the richest people in the world and try to find a pessimist in there. You know, there's, there's probably a couple, but um, you know, there's not too many, I guess you could argue maybe Elon Musk is somewhat pessimistic about earth's future in order. And that's why we have to go to Mars. But, but in general, <laughs> I would say, you know, the optimists make money and pessimists sound smart is kind of like a cliche that I think is somewhat true. Yeah. Um, but then like, as you know, my time horizon is shorter. So I just feel like you can be tactically bearish and that's a worthwhile, like from a trading point of view Mm -hmm. and you can be structurally bullish, but it's just so hard to be structurally bearish because you just have so many things going against you. And one of them is just that stocks are a nominal asset that pays a dividend. So, you know, prices just generally go up in the world and more money gets created. So if you're short indexes, that's, you know, that's a massive, massive, headwind or like it's a tailwind for stocks, a headwind that you're fighting as a short. So like my advice, and I'm not the only person to ever say this is that you can pick shorts and you can, you can say, this is a a really shitty company and I'm going to ride it to $1. Um, but shorting indexes is just way too hard. Oh yeah.
0: Everyone seems to be seeing the religion on that. Cause I've (laughs) spoken to a lot of people recently who've just said, I I don't short, I don't short anymore. It's just too hard. It's it's, you could, you could lose so much more money than you, than you. Maybe the astute
1: observer is saying time to buy SPX puts then because they are (laughs) are cheap right now, but, um, I don't know anyone that's ever made money doing that in other than 08. Um, sorry, go ahead.
0: Yeah. So, I just want to kind of bring it back to to what we saw, but i I think that's that's all really sort of great framework, I think, to lay things out in um because you're right, and even the central bankers said listen we're we're meeting to meeting now like they've even acknowledged that they yeah. don't really like they have this plan, and they want everyone to think they're going to really tackle inflation, but they don't really know how they're going to do it, and they don't really know like what's left in that job, and they're mm-hmm. kind of data dependent and they're You know, they're they're kind of spitballing it. So what does that mean? I want to get back to stocks in a minute, but first, what does that mean for treasury yields? Because one thing we've been hearing is that like the markets are looking at different things, right? The bond market and stock market look like they're looking at different worlds. And everybody seems kind of out of step with what central banks are saying. I mean, not long ago we had easing priced in, and now all of a sudden, you know, maybe we've got two consecutive rate hikes, Powell says today. So what are you thinking about? What are you thinking about? Treasury yields, U.S. Treasury yields?
1: Yeah, so I, I think that yields are going higher. I don't think crazy higher, but we've been in this consolidation for quite a while. Um, and I think the market is kind of slow to realize that there's still a lot of support for the economy, um, specifically on housing, but then also the infrastructure and the fiscal and there could be some fiscal drag maybe later if student loans have to start getting paid in that, and that could hurt sentiment. Um, but I mean, that's a story for Q4. I think that's October is the earliest that people will have to start paying. Um, but like, if you if you look around the world, it, housing has actually picked up quite a bit. Um, and so that's one underpinning of the economy. If you look at housing, government, and um, and infrastructure, like fiscal kind of stuff, outside of government, which is like, you know, actual shovels in the ground, which is happening. Um, there's still a lot of supports for the economy. And then I think people got like excited about the tech layoffs, um, which is like 5% of the workforce. Uh, and if you look at the May payrolls report, it shows all the industries and it's like increase, 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 then like decrease in information technology, increase, 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 like the, the shortage, that has existed since 2021 is still there and like it again in that going back to our earlier conversation it's in that realm of like the unmeasurable like of course one day that shortage will be taken up but it doesn't seem like it's close like i was just in florida and and there's just help wanted signs everywhere in my i live in connecticut there's still a lot of help wanted signs um so to me it's i mean that's not a way to to make an observation about treasury yields, but I'm just saying that as an anecdote on top of 14 straight jobs reports that were strong. Um, to me, it feels like the market's been trying to kind of play this dish, disinflationary badness is coming, and it looks more like disinflationary muddle through. And then at the at the uh, on the other side, you may actually see a pickup again in housing, like in places like Sydney and Toronto and. Um and a lot of the US things have stabilized. Actually, I think there's a chart there. If, if you're if you guys um can bring it up. So
0: of housing? What's yeah, the, the chart?
1: One, yeah, the the black, blue, and red line. I can oh, see Oh yeah. I think I think thing.
0: we're seeing yeah, I think Brian's yeah, got it. It's loaded in front of him. Yeah.
1: So this this is a chart of uh home builder sentiment is black, home builder stocks is blue, and red is home prices. So generally the sentiment moves first just because home prices are kind of a lagging indicator, um, just the way they're measured. So home prices got down to like, now I think that number is like minus 1.7 year on year or something 1.7%. Uh, after, keep in mind after they've gone to the moon. So like the price drop is barely visible. If you look at the actual price of homes, like in Toronto, Sydney, whatever. Um, and so the home builder sentiment and, and, um, and all, all the kind of more forward-looking stuff looks relatively good again. Um, which I know is like in the realm of the unthinkable, like how is that even possible? But again, there's shortages everywhere, right? Like there's just not enough homes for sale and there's a lot of Airbnbs available to rent and all that. Um, but there's not a lot of homes available. So, People are banking on o- OER and and rents and, and home prices to be like the final disinflationary thing that gets us from like four and a half to two. Mm-hmm. And I just don't, I don't think that's going to be the case. So I don't want to get into the whole boring thing about the OER lags. Cause a lot of people know about that, but it's kind of important. So essentially the, the rent portion or the owner's equivalent rent portion in CPI lags by 12 months. So it's about to go down a lot and provide some inflationary relief. But then on the other side of that, it could already, you could look forward and say that stuff is already based like rents in New York city just made all time highs, Brooklyn, Queens all made all time highs. So this like disinflationary impulse, I think is it's real, obviously like goods, prices and shipping. There's many, many things on that side of the ledger that have helped a lot, but getting from like wherever, like, you know, in Europe, getting from 10 to six is easy relative to getting from six to two. Like, I think it's going to be exponentially more difficult for the Fed to get from like four and a half to two or four and a half to three, maybe they get there and then yeah. getting lower is hard. And I mean, that's reflected in the in the projections that they made.
0: We're going to take another quick break to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. And you made the great point that you're seeing it on the goods side, but the services side, you know, this is two, two economies. The weakness Mm -hmm. we've seen is really concentrated in goods and manufacturing. The services is still going gangbusters in a lot of places.
1: Yeah. That's the thing is like, if you look at super core and like those things that strip out all that housing and goods and all that, that, that part is just like, eh, it's, it hasn't moved at all. And then like some good economists are arguing like goods lead and then eventually input prices go down and um, and then services prices go down. But then I think you had Sam Rines on recently. His point is that the, the corporations are enjoying this opportunity to raise prices and they may not be so quick to, to stop raising prices. Uh, that's what you need for disinflation. You obviously don't need price cuts, but you need n- no more price rises. And there's still a lot of price rises going on because like in my town, all the restaurants, Basically, the prices were the same forever as long as I can remember, and then they were like, "Ooh, we can put prices up a dollar." Ooh, let's try that. Okay, how about another dollar? Another dollar, and then you add on the Uber fees and all this, and they're like, "Well, let's just put it up two more dollars." And a lot of that has its own momentum. And like, okay, if you're that restaurant and your input prices went down, you're like, "Well, everyone's still coming here. We can barely keep up." Yeah, it's. Up I mean, if it, it's
0: only going to stop when you have a recession and. Everyone out of work with no money, right? I mean, that's eventually right, right. will stop that. And that's not mm-hmm. a good scenario for anybody.
1: Yeah. And then, so like to me, the yield curve always is a good predictor of recession, but with unknowable timing, which kind of like good forecasts always have a time condition. And so, if you have a forecast that doesn't have a time condition, if anything, I think like this was the case in 06 as well that it actually cost people a lot more money believing in that indicator because yeah it eventually happened but the two years you were waiting like so many people lost their jobs trading from the short side in that interim yeah.
0: and um, that's what's happened right everyone keeps pushing that recession forecast mm-hmm. out is it that the, the they were asked about that to the, the central bankers and they were like well we don't you know they kind of couched and said we don't necessarily see recession is the uh, you know outcome of higher rates Are we back to trying to figure out if they can actually, even if it's not by design, but by just pure luck, hit a soft landing? Or is it just that we're gonna get that recession, we just don't know when?
1: I mean, it's possible, right? Like the the track record isn't very good on like aggressive tightening cycles, but they did do it in 95 somehow. Um, And the funny thing is like, everyone was complaining about negative rates and zero interest rate policy and how it's doing all these bad things. And like so many traditional, you know, like more, m- more like, um, more like non-Keynesian kind of people, like more Hayek-, Hayek kind of people were like, we need to get rates back up so we can have a normal economy and the yeah. world can be normal. Like shit, maybe that's just what's going on is rates are back to normal. And that's like the crazy, insane view of that would be like, that's a good thing. I mean we did
0: have a lot of people say that though a lot of people were like you got to get back to some more traditional sense of like this is you know this can't go on kind of thing
1: yeah so like i think it's i know it's kind of boring when people don't make like decisive forecasts but to me this like this has been and i've kind of been like this for a while but um it's a good time to be somewhat agnostic and then but then the, the thing is you have to hope that you know it when you see it so like same thing with the UK, right? They have all the mortgage resets and all that. And people including myself have been saying like, there's some kind of time bomb here probably when mortgages reset, but the, the data just doesn't show that that's true. So at some point you have to go, which is kind of like you said, what the central banks have done, go to a little bit less forecasting mode and more to like a agnostic framework. And then, but then hopefully, you know, it when you see it, because otherwise, you're, you're dead when, when everything hits the fan.
0: That's it. And you, so you just brought up a really, really interesting point. Um, and I think it's, it's kind of been bubbling out there, but no one's really articulated it. You just called it a time bomb with the mortgages. And I think that's right. I think that's what people think it is. And I don't think that's the only place where they think that there are these potential, right. um, and the m- longer this period goes on, people are not describing it as a coiled spring but there is this feeling that there are pressures building from that what could be a rate you know reset you've got divergent central banks right now Japan's hanging on to its policy and people feel like things can blow but mm-hmm. they just don't know when i wonder though are, is are is anyone going to get that that indicator or that sign, because we saw with Silicon Valley bank, that's that wake up call that things happen so rapidly Mm -hmm. now that we're in the electronic handheld tech age, that when people rush for the exits or make a decision or lose confidence, it happens super quickly. Is that a word?
1: And I mean, and to be fair, if you were waiting, like, I'll know it when I see it, that was, that looked like that was it. Right. So I think that's a fair point. Um, But then very quickly after that, the data really didn't support the idea that the lending contraction was going to kill the economy. So even if you kind of thought you knew it when you saw it in March, really by April, it was kind of clear that like, okay, this is somewhat idiosyncratic for now. And we're not doing a replay of the 1980s SNL crisis. So the other thing too, is that, and this is another reason why it's just so hard to be bearish is they just change the rules whenever they want. Right. So like you can hate that or like it, like I don't like it, but that's just the world that we're in is that like the Ben Hunt often says that, that capital markets are a political utility. And if you kind of look at it through that framework, that just, it's just one more reason. It's just so hard to be bearish because the, the money that, (laughs) that can come in and the rule changes and all that, like, which is what you saw in 09, that was the ultimate lesson of of 09 is when they change the rules, then get get out of the way. And I mean, essentially, that's what they did with the with the regional banks, right is just, well, we'll just kind of offer unlimited deposit guarantees without actually offering unlimited deposit guarantees. And everything ought to be fine. So, I mean, I guess that, that, that was a lesson we learned in 09 and it, and it was valid again in March of uh, 2023.
0: Yeah. Great point. I want to bring up this. Um, we have a, a comment on YouTube about the, um, about Canada, asking about Canada because you, your Canadian population chart on Twitter got quite a bit of attention. I don't know if we have that, Brian, if you have that Canadian population chart or not. But anyway, um, if if we don't get it up, just walk us through that, Brent. What, it showed sort of Canadian population skyrocketing, right? What's, what's going on with that? What do you think that means for Canada?
1: Yeah, it's a shocking chart. Like essentially population growth has been going like eh, for whatever. I think the chart went back to 1946 or something like that. And then so I, it, the chart is US and Canada and they're both going like eh, basically to zero. And then in the last four years, Canada just goes kaboom. And so population growth is 3.4%. And Canada's gone from like 30 to 40 million population in a relatively short period, um, with a lot of that coming more recently. Uh, there are many, like many stories interwoven, but specifically, they have an immigration policy that is trying to attract like what the they would term like high quality or i don't know if i say we or they i live in the us but i'm canadian but um but high quality immigration essentially um and i'm i'm going to stay away from the politics of immigration because the a lot of the responses on twitter were were more like culture war kind of stuff, which oh yeah, sure.
0: always. The minute there's yeah. like five phrases we can say that are going <laughs> to everyone's head will explode and it'll become a tribal.
1: Yeah, I'm know. not interested in culture wars. Yeah, so war. but um, that,
0: it is. It looks like it is because of their immigration efforts.
1: So it's a pol- It's an immigration policy thing. Um, like seven percent of it is Ukraine, so they they've oh, been very welcoming to like 150,000 Ukrainian refugees. Um, and then a lot of it is the backlash to the U.S. So or not backlash, but like um, a response to essentially it became very difficult to immigrate to the U.S. Starting in 2016, like the vibes got a lot more anti-immigration from the administration um, and that's really continued. And so, for example, like when I worked at a bank um, a lot, the old way used to be like someone that went to like the best business school in India would want to move to the U S and go to MIT or work at Citibank or whatever. And the obstacles starting whatever year, like I remember having conversations with people in India, like Pakistan in like 2017, 2018 saying like, dude, it's just so hard now. It just does. It looks so unpromising to apply to the U S that I'm just going to go to Canada. So that was a major factor as well. I think was, The vibes and then also the perception of the vibes. So then people are just like, if it's gonna be that hard, like I'll just go to Canada and that'll be easier. And that
0: listen, Canada's, you know, Canada has a lot going for it. If it's welcoming and all the things you can benefit, right, exactly.
1: I mean, I chose to move to the US. I Mm -hmm. like them both, but um, but the implication I think that has been one of those hard to hard to measure things. There it is. Um so that red thing is Canada and the blue is the U.S.
0: I mean, that is a really, I mean, for those who didn't see it on Twitter, it's just like a shot up
1: and yeah, the numbers may not
0: sound big when we're talking about them, but when you're talking about rate of change, that's like, and by the way, there's the U S little rebound, but you know, it <laughs> be turning lower again.
1: And I mean, and, it's, and- it's real numbers. Like it, it's a million people in one year or whatever like that. And most of those people are going to a few urban centers. So you know, I think that's why you get some of this culture war stuff because it's, you know, when there's a substantial amount of immigration in a short time, it triggers, um, some it comes
0: with yeah challenges. But yeah. Just
1: like when the Irish immigrated to New York in the late 1800s, there was a lot of xenophobia and all that. Oh um, yeah.
0: There's great, there's great history on all that, um, which yeah. is worth, uh, worth, uh, and anyone who comes to New York, I recommend a trip to Ellis Island, just not mm, just for kids.
1: Fascinating. It's a good, it's yeah. good
0: history. Yeah, it's a good history. Listen,
1: listen oh, sorry. One thing that I forgot to mention. So the the implication essentially has been that there's already a very tight housing market everywhere in the world, and that's creating even more tightness because you know new people need to live somewhere.
0: Yeah. Um, we are going to continue this because I want to ask you um, about what some of this macro means for some of the crosses that I know you trade and some of the assets. Um, we are at the half hour. So just remember, in order to continue with us, uh, you need to be a member. So scan the QR code and come along with us. We hope you do.